Welcome to episode 10 of People Are The Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features my good friend, Victor Nguyen Long. Victor is currently a freelance creative director working at the intersection of pop culture, politics, and activism. It's been incredible to see how he's translated his marketing skills into impact work over the years. He's worked with brands like Red Bull, Nike, Cartier, Audi, Uber, and YouTube to help them create more meaningful relationships with their consumers. Victor spent the 2020 election as creative director for Acronym and led creative production for their $100 million digital effort. Victor and I discuss his Vietnamese American upbringing, how he went from studying engineering to a career in marketing, voter turnout activism, raising millions to stop Asian hate, bridging the political divide, Web3 and NFTs, and much more. Here is Victor Nguyen Long on People Are the Answer. Victor, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeffrey. It's been a long time coming. You know, uh, I've known you since... I was probably 11 or 12 years old. You were, as you know, one of my brother's best friends from college. My brother's about 10 years older than me. And yeah, no, I mean, it's like, it, it is amazing to think about um, how long we've, uh, we've, we've known each other. Um, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've seen you grow up in so many ways. Uh, and so uh, I'm flattered that, um, that, uh, that you've, you've asked me to, to, to come on the podcast. Well, yeah, I appreciate you accepting. Um, you've certainly been one of my brother's friends that I've always looked up to and admired, admired your career path, admired your personality. Um, so it's awesome to be able to have you in this platform. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to looking forward to to um, to the conversation. It's like on one hand, I've known you for so long. And it's like I was like, I don't know what else. What else do we need? What do what do we not know about each other? <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll find um, some things out. Yeah, exactly. So let's start off um, just by telling us, uh, you know, where you live and what you're up to these days. Yeah. Um, so uh, my name is Victor Nguyen Long. Uh, I'm a freelance creative director uh, living in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, where I was born and raised, uh, technically Arlington, Virginia. Um, people in D.C. get very, uh, very touchy if, uh, if you don't act, you're not actually from uh, the District of Columbia, um, but I grew up right across the river in Arlington, Virginia, born and raised um, uh, in a Vietnamese American family. Uh, and, uh, you know, the vast majority of my career has been in brand marketing, um, where, uh, you know, I, I worked at Red Bull for quite a while and Nike um, at their global headquarters for quite a while and, you know, spent the past couple of years um, taking everything I learned um, getting folks excited about sneakers and energy drinks um, to also get excited about voting. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, after the election, I, I decided to take a little bit of time off and kind of recollect myself. And then uh, as of uh, just a few weeks ago, just decided to dip my, my toes back into uh, the freelancing uh, waters, uh, now working with, um, uh, with a number of Fortune 500 brands um, on, uh, on, on their brand strategy. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And we'll dig a little more into later uh, you bringing your marketing expertise into politics. But 
in general, when you're doing your work, you know, what motivates you? Earlier in my career, earlier in my career, it was really, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to work, um, discover Red Bull um, while I was still in college and uh, realized like how passionate I was about that particular brand um, and have always been driven my career, driven uh, during my career by, um, by uh, the brands that I personally align myself to. And um, these days, you know, now that I've been doing this for, for going on 20 years now, um, I realize it's like, okay, I've developed a skill set and, and a body of experience. And I've worked for a lot of uh, different brands that need marketing and whatever the case may be. But I, I would say it's like, I'm always interested and very curious to see what the world needs at any given moment and how I might be able to apply my skill set. Um, you know, as I alluded to with, with the political stuff, this is like, oh, like I saw a need. Um, for uh, a more creative approach to political advertising. Um, so I dove into that. Um, uh, and then also, you know, I'm, I'm also largely motivated in, in, in building sort of a, um, a work-life balance around uh, being able to take care of my, my, my family um, and, uh, and my girlfriend. Uh, and uh, thinking about, you know, my folks, as you know, Jeffrey, are, are, are a bit older. Uh, I'm the only child. Um, my dad's 91 and, and suffers from Alzheimer's and, uh, and my mom's 85, uh, and thankfully very healthy. Um, but, uh, but they need help. Um, and you know, uh, these days, you know, I need to engineer a certain degree of flexibility into my life, uh, to, uh, to be able to be there for them when they need, um, uh, when they need me. Yeah. Well, it's awesome that you've put yourself in the position to be able to create that flexibility. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, and so like really from a motivational standpoint, it's, it's like one doing right by them. Uh, and then, uh, which helps me, you know, pick and choose, uh, the type of work I do, how committed or, uh, I can be, um, to that work. Uh, and then just trying to figure out how to balance, um, the amount of time I spend working versus how much, uh, money I need to, to pay my bills. Uh, and, uh, and also have enough time and flexibility to, 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 to help them when they need. Well, you know, speaking of your parents, uh, I find that innovators and social impact in particular are molded by how they grow up. And you grew up in a Vietnamese American family, um, the son of immigrants. Can you tell me how that sort of made you who you are and shaped your activism? It's, uh, it's funny. So my parents have an unusual history when it comes to how they, they came to America. Um, most Vietnamese people that you'll, you'll come across, um, you know, they, uh, they or their parents or their grandparents came here um, after the war. Um, so the fall of Saigon in 1975. Um, and, you know, from that point on through the early 80s, um, you know, came over, uh, there's a massive refugee crisis, um, not too dissimilar to what's happening uh, in Afghanistan. Um, where they saw the collapse of their country and uh, and fled, uh, oftentimes by boat. Uh, those refugees were came to be known as um, as boat people, um, and uh, and were victims uh, out in the sea of just uh, the, the elements, as well as uh, pirates, um, as as well as just being turned around by coast guard uh, and being repatriated back to the United uh, to uh, to Vietnam. 
uh, or wherever the country of origin they were they they made for, or 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 taken inside refugee camps um, before eventually making their way to the United States um, through sponsors, um, and uh, and so. Um, my parents, however, uh, had been in the States since the 50s and 60s. So my dad came over in 1957 uh, on a scholarship to the University of Scranton um, and, uh, and studied there. Um, and then uh, was able to get a scholarship for my mom who came over in 1961 to a tiny little school at the time it was called Misericordia College. Uh, it's a university now. Um, and, uh, and that was also in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so she came over in 1961 you know, just not very, not very long after um, desegregation in the United States. Um, something that I have to remind them of and older generations of was like, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, um, that, uh, that the United States was racially segregated. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, they lived through the, the 1968, uh, uh, well, I, I should just say the civil, the civil rights movement in the sixties. Um, and then, uh, and then a wave of Vietnamese people came uh, a little bit after that. And so my, I grew up in a household that was, um, had a very tight knit, uh, Vietnamese American community. Um, my house was like a rotating door of activists, uh, Vietnamese American activists and people that are just heavily involved in community and, um, and, uh, and politics, uh, and lobbying basically, um, uh, if you can call it that. And, uh, and specific, specifically around refugee rights. And, uh, and so my mom uh, co-founded an organization called Boat People SOS, uh, the DC chapter um, of it. And, uh, and that was like for a long time, and it still exists to this day, but it was a long time the preeminent uh, nonprofit that, um, uh, that, that fought for um, Vietnamese refugee rights. Um, so increased quotas and, uh, and, and whatnot. Again, not dissimilar to what's happening with Af uh, Afghan refugees at the moment. And I could, distinctly remember myself sitting around the dinner the dining room table or amongst guests and they'll all talk about politics and politics and politics and politics and what was happening in vietnam and and uh you know anti-communist movement and, and democracy from vietnam and all these things that i couldn't be bothered with any of it right um you know only now in retrospect do i think do i realize that that largely had to do with my own privilege right um of being american born um uh uh as well as just like uh, you know, racial privilege as well, and being a, a male, right, uh, and having a certain level of financial privilege, growing up in a, um, in an, uh, you know, a, a, an affluent suburb of Washington D.C., even. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, through osmosis, <laughs> like I think, you know, the the seed of activism was planted um, uh, in me, and then you know, and later in my adulthood, I, I, you know, I, I supported various social justice movements, but didn't necessarily have the vocabulary. To describe what that was, like marriage equality and, and criminal justice reform um, and uh, reproductive rights, all things, all progressive values that I deeply believed in and supported and volunteered with and gave money to, um, but I didn't know that was called activism, or nor did I know that it was called social justice. Right? If we're using broad terms, I I just thought I was doing the right thing. Um, only later on did I have. Uh, you know, mentors and 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 just people around me that were willing to teach me, uh, willing to let me say the wrong thing sometimes, and using those as teaching moments instead of uh, instead of like uh, vilifying me, right? Right. Um, and letting me kind of come along in my journey. 
um, and, and really de develop a, a better understanding for um, what it means to stand up for what you believe in. I think it's, it's really cool to see where you came from. And like you mentioned, the osmosis that happened, because I feel similarly, you know, I think we both had really great parents growing up and perhaps we didn't always agree or get along or care about what they were doing, but I think a lot of it wore off on us. And like you said, you felt like you were just doing the right thing and that ended up being activism. And I think that's been the case for myself a bit as well. Um, just trying to do the right thing has led me to stand up for some of my beliefs and um, eventually feel honored to have had the experience that I did growing up. I mean, ultimately, it is rooted in, in, in the values that are instilled in you, right? And whether it's explicitly said or, or indirectly said, you know, those things that, you know, it shapes you, um, you know, the things that your parents say, well, I would say it's like the, old, the older you get, the more right your parents become. <laughs> So because true. like yeah. the things that they've been saying our entire lives that we completely ignored or like totally disagreed with, eventually you're like, oh yeah, I guess they were right about that, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and and that that sort of stuff, um, you know, builds uh, builds your character, builds your sense of value, uh, your 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 sense of values, um, in your moral compass, yeah. um, and uh, and then you know it manifests itself in in in, in various ways. And everybody always criticizes young people for not caring about politics, right? It's like, that's not true, right? They, they, if you ask them about, let's say climate change or reproductive rights or gender equality or marriage equality or whatever the case may be, and LGBTQ rights, whatever, they, they, they'll say they care about those things, right? And all, across the spectrum, they'll say they care about those things. What we've done is we, we've, we've failed them from a education standpoint of teaching them how that translates into politics, right, and government, uh, and uh, and helping them understand the the impact of one on the other. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, and so they don't turn out to vote because they don't really understand how the system is intended to work. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, it's it's it, it is like you know so much has to do with the the environment that you're brought up in, um, in terms of just uh, you know your outlook on the world. Um, right. And, 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 and sort of your sense of, uh, of, of you know, uh, what it is, um, your, your sense of activism, yeah. Well, I wanna get back to how you brought your skills to sort of show those individuals why they need to vote and things like that. But um, let's hear about how you got your skills a little bit. You know, you, you talked about your background in marketing, but you know, I remember when you were in college that you were studying engineering. How'd that happen? Growing up, I was, my house, like my entire mom's side of the family is all artists and creatives, writers, poets, everything. Um, I grew up, uh, I grew up drawing and painting um, and, uh, and just being like reasonably talented in art. But I was also good in math and science. But nobody ever told me art could be a career, right? Like I never knew that, you know, it's somebody's job to design this hard drive. Right? It, it seems stupid and silly saying that out loud, right? But it's like somebody's job is to make a decision that this is orange and it has these little grooves in it, or like you know, it's somebody's job really to like design this logo, this Topo Chico logo, right? Um, right. Like it just never never occurred to me, and so you know, it wasn't really practical. You know, I think I had a fleeting um, thought about being an architect, but but it just it never came full circle and then um 
Uh, and then, so yeah, you know, I was reasonably good at math and science. I was, I loved technology. I grew up in, I grew up in a house that, that had a computer since 1987, right? Um, and so was, I think, uh, early adopter of the internet and, and, uh, and, and all that. And so like engineering seemed like a really interesting avenue to pursue. As soon as I got to college, I was immediately humbled because I still don't know to this day how I got into Georgia Tech of all places. Right, like my SATs were were like kind of okay. Uh, my grades were were pretty decent, but I, I still don't know. Like, I mean, compared to the people that work, like your brother, like I have no idea how I got in. So, and then and then I have no idea how I graduated because I I did not electrical engineering was not my was not my subject. I struggled yeah. throughout all college, and the, I think the only reason I graduated is because I had a lot of electives and things that I I enjoyed, right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, my last year in school, uh, still very intent on, on finishing my degree and, and getting an engineering job, uh, like, uh, a friend of mine, Jason Rodwell, uh, who went to high school with our friend Merrick, um, came up to me, he'd been working for Red Bull for, for, for the past year as a, what's known as a student brand manager. Um, and he came up to me, he's like, Hey, Victor, like I've been you know, I got to find somebody to fill my shoes for this job next year. I think, I think you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, me? Why me? And he's like, you know, it's like, you know, you know, a lot of people and, you know, it's, it's, it's social. And, um, and at that time it was two, two, 2000, 2001. And I had maybe had a couple of Red Bulls and they had just arrived in Atlanta, maybe a year earlier, two years earlier. Right. So nobody knew what Red Bull was. Um, and I was like, okay, well, sure. It's a, it's a, hundred, a couple hundred bucks, literally a month, right? So pennies. Um, right. But I was like, hey, it's a few bucks, right? Um, and, uh, and so I was able to become a student brand manager, which is basically a little marketing manager for your campus. Like you are the expert on your campus and your job is to connect the Red Bull brand to what's happening on your campus. So at UC, you know, at UC San Diego, the surf club is probably a thing, right? As you can imagine. At Georgia Tech or NYU, it's probably not. Right. So what's popping off on your campus? And then how can Red Bull uh, intersect and, and support those scenes? Right. Um, and so that opened my eyes to what marketing was. And I found like I, I, I woke up one day and I was like, I was like, well, like, I do this stuff for free. It's just so much fun. I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. It gets me out and meeting people. And, and uh, it's just really fun and dynamic. It was tapping into my creative side, which I had, which had been entirely dormant. Um, all of college, except for designing the occasional uh, fraternity formal t-shirt, <laughs> right? Um, and so I just found myself really enamored um, with it and uh, um, and uh, had a friend's father who worked at Coca-Cola. Um, and, you know, when I graduated, it was immediately after the, the, the 99, uh, 2000 uh, tech bubble burst. So there were no engineering jobs and were no technology related jobs. Um, and, and my grades were terrible. So like, uh, so I, there, there was no chance of me getting an engineering job. And, uh, you know, this friend's father who worked at Coca-Cola approached me on during my, my graduation lunch and said, and asked as I and said, Hey, Victor, if you're ever serious about pursuing this marketing stuff, cause he and I would talk about it occasionally. Um, why don't you give me a call? Um, and I put it off for months thinking, I was like, well, I'm not going to go into marketing. I'm not going to tell my parents that they spent all this money for me to go through engineering school and when I go to marketing, like 
they don't even know what marketing is. Um, but then, as I say, the, the, the rest is history. Um, I eventually gave him a phone call and my first job out of school was working at Coca-Cola, which is right across the street from George Tech. You had mentioned a podcast that you're on previously that I listened to before this. And I like how you talked about Red Bull and, and Coca-Cola and how you learned to think outside of the box from Red Bull, but you learned how the inside the box thinking works with Coca-Cola. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's incredibly important, right? Um, I think, it, you know, in marketing, especially when there's a premium placed on innovation, you have to know where everybody's digging so you can go zag, right? Um, and yeah, Red Bull, literally, I'm so spoiled because that's what taught me how to market. So like my, my starting point is like probably where most people's comfort zones um, uh, end, right? Um, it's like kind of where my starting point is. But there's so much to learn from the institutions that have been around, right? Like there's a reason why best practices are best practices. They've worked for a really long time and they tend to work. Um, and, you know, at the time, Coca-Cola was the most valuable brand on earth. And so they got to be doing something, right? Um, and eventually, as you see, as you saw Red Bull mature over time, they started, had to adopt, they started to have to adopt these more traditional tactics um, to scale. Um, and so it wasn't always just funding games and doing these outrageous events and, and things like that. Like that was still remain a, a portion of their marketing, marketing strategy, but ultimately they needed to resort to coming out with more flavors, right? To defend their shelf space, right? Um, because Monster and Rockstar were coming out with a dozen different flavors and multiple sizes. And, you know, there was a time where Red Bull used to say like, you know, it's like, we'll never go to a bigger size can. Eventually they had to go to a bigger size can. And then, you know, it, it, you know, there's a time when it was like, we'll never come out with another flavor, right? And eventually they came out with sugar-free and now there's like a whole line of different flavors, right? Um, so eventually, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the market dynamics require you to do some of these things. Um, but the important thing is also maintaining your, your innovative and creative edge um, as well. Um, and so, you know, when, you know, I work with clients now or, you know, in the, in, even in the political arena, this is like, no, 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 like, let me learn as much as I can from the people that have come before me, the way that it's been done. And then let me evaluate for myself what works or doesn't work in the moment, because culture and the cultural context changes constantly, right? Um, we, I mean, we saw it happen with social media, right? Like, you, you know, just, you can't just take a television ad and put it into Instagram and expect it to do the same thing. Uh, and so... You know, it is a matter about, you know, uh, evolving with the culture um, and uh, evolving with the culture, but then also, you know, uh, uh, not fixing, uh, not fixing what isn't broke. Yeah, that you said it perfectly. And um, it's really cool to hear how the experience at Red Bull and, and places like Nike shaped your outlook and your marketing skills. And, you know, just for everyone's edification, you were at Audi, Nike, Cartier, um, the awesome uh, agency 72 and sunny. Uh, but, you know, I know we could talk marketing all day and I want to dig a little further into some of the political and activist experience, but anything else from your marketing career that you think is going to be applicable to that? I'll, I'll say like, you know, again, having started my marketing career at Red Bull um, and then going to a place like Nike uh, and then also cutting my teeth in strategy at 72 and sunny, like, it's, it always starts with the people, 
right? And it, and you know, this is maybe this was a bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come later, like you know, kind of what my motivation is now. But like, really, it's like, what do people need, right? Ultimately, yes, consumerism is you know can be reduced to buying a bunch of stuff you don't need. But ultimately, these products they sell because they solve a problem that somebody has, right? And I use the word problem, the word problem very loosely, right? But it's a need or a problem that they have, right? Um, and so, you know, ultimately, it always starts with like, you know, going to the people, going to the source, um, and understanding what communities need, right? Whether that for Red Bull, it was the skateboarding community, or the breakdancing community, or the or the mountain biking community, or the snowboarding community. Um, and Red Bull's approach, Red Bull's mission, you know, at one point was was to bring and uh, was was to um, give people and ideas wings, right? Uh, and so everything that Red Bull has ever done has been born of asking, you know, people that are endemic to the communities what they need, right? So as an example, um, uh, as an example, breakdancing, right? So historically, breakdancing has been a, a, a crew versus crew battle, right? Um, you've seen it in the movies. You've seen it. In a, it's always crew versus crew. And, you know, some folks... And the b-boying community had come to, uh, to Red Bull and said like, hey, you know what? Nobody's ever done like a one versus one, right? One v one, who is the best b-boy or b-girl in the world? And so they came up with a concept called Red Bull BC1. Um, and it wasn't somebody that was like at a desk, you know, in, a, in, in khakis, like trying to figure out like, okay, how do we infiltrate the b-boy community? It was genuinely spending time with the b-boy community and then coming to us with a need. And then because of Red Bull's resources, being able to give that idea wings, right? Uh, and bringing that, that to fruition. Uh, and I think they're coming up on the 20 year anniversary, 25th year anniversary of BC1 now. Um, or if you remember Sean White, you know, when he, when he won uh, Olympic gold, you know, his, his biggest complaint was that, hey, I, 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 I snowboarded in Tahoe. And when I'm on the half pipe and practicing my, 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 my tricks, like everybody just copies me. They, they video me, they video me, and then they, they, they copy me. And so I have no competitive edge. So then Red Bull was like, well, let's solve that. So they built him a private half pipe on the backside. I think it was in Tahoe, if I'm not mistaken, but on the backside of the mountain. And that was his private training grounds leading up to the Olympics and where he eventually won gold, right? Pulling, I think at the time, a 1260. Um, again, like somebody, somebody's going to check me on that and be like, actually, it wasn't a 1260. Like, I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> what it was at the time. Um, and so, uh, and then, you know, if you've ever seen the Red Bull Air Race, for example, you know, Red Bull had sponsored, because Dietrich Monashitz, the owner, is, is, is also a pilot, but, you know, we, Red Bull sponsored these, these uh, aerobatic pilots. And the aerobatic pilots would come to, came to, to Red Bull and was like, you know, guys, like, we don't like just, we also like going fast. Not only like do we like to do tricks, aerobatic tricks, but we like to go fast as well. And so, you know, most people don't know, but they're, Air racing has been, airplane racing has existed, but it's always been um, a very, uh, very, very, very simple um, sport. It's like, it's out and back, like out a mile and back a mile and see how fast you can fly it. Uh, and so they wanted to create Formula One in the sky where there's twists and turns and you fly under bridges and, uh, and you do loop-de-loops, right? Um, but you got to do it as fast as possible. <laughs> and so, you know, now they have airplane racing at, you know, aerobatic airplane racing at 200 plus miles an hour um, or six, yeah, 200 plus miles an hour. So, um, and, and, and then similarly, like it is, 
you know, and then you, then you go to a, a company like Audi, who my role was to champion the customer, um, but that was a novel concept to them, um, like was to, to be a customer-centric organization uh, versus a, an organization that's just pushing metal is what they call it, right? Um, and so it was such a, it was such a, a jarring experience where, you know, Red Bull centered their community, Nike centered, uh, you know, Nike's mission was to bring in, in, inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And the word athlete has an asterisk next to it. And the asterisk says, if you have a body, you are an athlete, right? And so everything Nike does is whether it's a type of shoe and the material or like apparel or whatever it is around helping the athlete get better, right? And then you go to a company like Audi, which is is just moving metal, and to try to like get them to care about the customer was was actually quite a journey experience. And same thing with politics; like you would think it's about the people, but it's actually it, it, it's it's a uh, it's surprisingly not. So is that what drove you to, to politics? Like you you had the thought that hey, I can be really impactful here by bringing these marketing skills into this space. Yeah, like even when I before I cared about politics and and I say that Obama got me to pay attention um, and that was in 2008. Uh, I'd always voted in the presidential election but never primary, never, no, never another uh, election. Obama got me to pay attention and then you know I slowly as I got older I started to understand you know what the stakes of politics were, how government worked. Um, you know uh, I, I listened to a lot of NPR <laughs> um, and but like slowly I started realizing you know uh, how government worked um, and, uh, and took more interest in it. But long before I cared about that, like I always said, it's like, why do political, why are political ads so terrible? Like they're all the same tone. They're all like, they're, they're all super boring. Like, I was like, what if we took a little bit of magic of Red Bull magic or Nike magic and we took it to the space? Um, and so, you know, uh, after I left Audi, you know, I, I, I really went to go explore and figure out like, what is it the world needed and how I might be able to bring my unique set of skills to it um, and found myself really fired up with the 2016 election um, and, you know, started my journey into like under, like immersing myself in politics um, and, uh, and, and just learning the landscape, learning how the game is played, learning where the barriers are, learning where, uh, who the players were um, so that I could, uh, so I, that I could, start to develop my understanding for, for how to either dismantle that or, uh, or, or just uh, uh, insert myself in the process, right? Or find my place in the process, I should say. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, like, you know, it was one of those things where it was an emergence of like what was happening in pop culture, right? Like the entire world started talking about the election. Um, and uh, and I felt that I had an opportunity to bring a more creative lens to the work um, that, that happens in politics. Um, and uh, and so uh, so yeah, and you know that was a lot of a lot of time spent um, uh, uh, meeting people, talking to people, anybody that would listen to me talk about the role of culture and creativity in politics. Um, and then uh, it so happens I, I you know. Um, uh, out of the blue, I DM'd um, a woman who uh, named Tara McGowan, who um, uh, who is like a total firebrand uh, and just uh, just like an incredible badass uh, in the political space, uh, just unafraid <laughs> to ruffle some feathers and push the envelope. Um, 
and, uh, and she had started an organization called Acronym. I found out that their offices were two blocks from my house. Um, and it sounded like, you know, just from her social media and interviews that I'd read uh, about, uh, about her and the organization, it just sounded like, um, uh, it sounded like we were thinking the same things philosophically about the role of creativity and culture and digital in politics. And, uh, and, you know, uh, we, we uh, I actually like, like literally DM'd her out of the blue and we got coffee and then, you know, uh, one thing led to another and, and, and she has told me that she was looking for a creative director. Um, uh, I had not considered uh, jumping into politics directly, you know, uh, saw the opportunity to, to, to do some really interesting things as a creative director there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of what, that's what kind of kickstarted it. Even just the term creative director in politics probably hasn't been seen a lot or enough. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like uh, a lot of the advertising that you see is driven out of um, uh, what they call the comms team. Um, and usually there is, yeah, a creative director, but uh, in an agency world, in the in the corporate world, like creative director is, is the person driving the entire creative vision and and. Uh, and, and a campaign's concept, for example, like, you know, the concepts uh, in, in a campaign. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, like, you know, creatives in politics tend to be treated very tactically um, and, uh, and, and often just don't have a, a, a more, a real meaningful seat at the, at the grown-ups table, right? Uh, the, the campaign principle, like the campaign, the, the candidate, for example, if we're just talking about a political campaign, the, the candidate and their campaign manager and their uh, comms director and then a bunch of consultants like often make a lot of decisions in a room uh, and then they come out and they go to the creative team they're like all right make this into a video make this into a t-shirt make this into uh, uh, an email or an ad right um, and and don't involve um, uh, the creatives uh, as strategic problem solvers that they are um, because at the end of the day uh, you know creative is is, is about you know, create like creatively solving problems, right? Um, and so that was like one of the the uh, the, the sort of the biggest learnings um, uh, learnings I had, and and wanted basically to to fight for more more seats at the table for more creative people. Yeah, that that's huge. I mean, people don't realize how similar it is to what when you're trying to sell something in business, trying to sell someone a candidate. Um, so seeing that brought into the mix was pretty incredible. And I think some of this is probably driven by social media. And you mentioned that the elections became part of the national conversation and it was only natural that there were these new elements coming into it. Yeah. And, you know, and so much, it's so important to be able to tap into the cultural zeitgeist. Um, I, I deeply believe that culture is the force multiplier um, that make the more tactical messaging and, 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 you know, sort of like, uh, you know, fundraising ads and uh, email uh, acquisition ads, like all work better, right? Um, it's just like, you know, I, I say this is like, you know, what we, like, I have to remind folks that only like two thirds of Americans can't correctly name the three branches of government. So talking to them about, um, about policy, is often lost on deaf ears. It's just, it's really esoteric, even though it shouldn't be, right? Like we all should have had a proper civics class. Um, we all should have, should understand 
our duties as a citizen. Uh, we all should have um, adequate journalism that helps us hold government accountable, um, but we don't. Uh, and so, you know, when you talk to people through the, the wonky political speak that we use uh, inside the Beltway here in Washington, DC, like it just doesn't, it's never gonna land. Um, and so you have to speak in metaphors, right? You have to bring humor into it. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to, to borrow a phrase, you know, like skin a cat uh, a, a dozen different ways um, so that, you know, you give different people different entry points into the, into the, onto the issue or uh, onto the candidate's platform or whatever the case may be. I say that like, you know, uh, it's like, I, like Shepard Ferry doing the Obama Hope poster was actually what spoke to me because I love design. I love Shepard Ferry. I loved street art at the time. And that's what got me to pay attention. And then Obama, you know, was talking about Lil Wayne and Jay-Z on his playlist. And that's, I was like, oh, this guy's speaking my language. And he wasn't talking about in, in like these 10 point policy plans, right? The substance was there if you needed to and dig for it. But ultimately, you know, he was speaking a language and, and he, he connected with a different group of people. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it's really important to understand like, you know, what is the cultural zeitgeist thinking about and what are they talking about? And then really figuring out how to, how to place your message within that context. Yeah, I think the the longtime politic types write that stuff off and think like, oh, why is he saying that? It's unnecessary. But it's these little things that are really connecting with everyday people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you know, we we saw it, like we see it, like it's um, at the end of the day, you're the the best you can really hope for, right? Given the context, uh, given the context of you know, people with limited um, understanding for how government works, right? Like, I always say, is like, you want to, you, you, you want to build a narrative that at the end of the day, when they come to the voting booth, you've left them with a feeling, right? And a general understanding of like, hey, you know what? Like, why did, you know, why did Trump give tax breaks to the rich, right? Like, I'm the, like, and so, and then, and then make a decision at the voting booth, right? But like, are they going to, are they going to be able to recite, you know, the, the, like, in this case, Biden's, um, like, Biden's, you know, uh, tax plan? Mm, probably not, right? Um, but the idea is that, like, at the end of the day, like, you just have to, you, you have to, you have to find ways to build these narratives over time, Um uh, to get people to really understand and wrap their heads around um, and, and bring people along on our journey of understanding. Can you give some examples of the type of work that you did at Acronym? Yeah, so so Acronym is a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and uh, the majority of the, of the work was is nonpartisan, like or it's, it's primary work. Um, uh, it's known in, in the industry's primary purpose is um, is voter registration and mobilization. And the mission was to, to build, um, you know, lasting infrastructure um, for a progressive movement, right? Um, because there is so many ups and downs, like there's a boom and bust cycle of innovation uh, every election cycle. And so what Acronym set out to do was to build some, uh, some infrastructure that would outlive 
each election cycle. And that can be built upon uh, every so often. So voter registration and mobilization, um, the organization also had an affiliated super PAC, right? Which is allowed to be as partisan as it wants. Um, and in this case, uh, it, uh, like a progressive leaning, uh, a progressive, um, it was a progressive super PAC. And so, um, so on one hand, uh, and it was exclusively digital um, because uh, we, we know that Democrats and the larger political field at large underinvest dramatically on digital. And digital is defined as, um, you know, paid media on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, on all the various social media platforms, Snapchat, as well as what we call connected TV, um, which is Hulu and, excuse me, and Roku and, uh, and other streaming services. Um, and so, uh, and especially given the context of the pandemic, and at the time we didn't know this, right, but, and, and everybody's sitting at home streaming everything and on their phones all day long, um, you know, like they're not, they're just not watching like te cable television as much, right? And so the only way you're going to actually reach people is on their phones uh, or while they're streaming something. Um, and so, you know, that being said is uh, we worked on a, on a voter registration mobilization program uh, that raised north of $10 million. Um, and then the super PAC raised uh, at north of $75 million to, to run digital ad campaigns uh, on, uh, in key battleground states uh, across the country. Uh, and so my job as creative director was to assemble uh, what I call the best creative team in all of politics um, of uh, uh, content producers, uh, designers, um, editors, motion graphics artists um, to create ads um, that we would then uh, hand off to our brilliant media team uh, and, uh, and they would run um, in, uh, in paid, paid advertising programs. Uh, on these various digital platforms. Yeah, well, it's been incredible to see how much these platforms have influenced um, elections and everything. And um, it's important. Yeah, you have to play the game that's there, you know, and I think you guys did a good job with that. No, for sure. <laughs> for somebody, I'm always, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, listen, my entire career and my livelihood depends on Facebook, Twitter, social media platforms doing really well. And continuing to do well, but uh, but I would gladly see them uh, regulated uh, and uh, and even at my expense um, for the betterment of society and and, and democracy. Um, and uh, but yeah, ultimately, but it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Um, to be able to to get um, you know the right candidates who believe in that elected, right? you have to run a campaign for them uh, and you have to use, you have to fish where the fish are, which is on social media. Um, and then same thing with the super PAC. Everybody's like, you know, it's like you, you take money from, you, you, like, like you take money from, um, from, uh, from the wealthy and millionaires and billionaires. And it's like, you know, we would, we would actually love it if super PACs didn't exist, right? Tara, our founder always said, it's like, I don't want super PACs, but at the time, this, this is how the game is played. And so you have to you have to play the game if you want to change if you want to change the game, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, it is a matter. It is one of those things where, um, uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it, you do have to you you do have to uh, work with the cards that you're dealt with. You did a lot of work on these campaigns, you know, through the 2020 campaigns. Um, 
what led you to ultimately decide to leave the political sphere? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really have to take my hat off to anybody that makes politics, um, and especially electoral politics and, and, and campaigning their entire career. It is uh, exhausting. Uh, it is a, uh, sometimes it feels like a thankless job. Um, and, uh, it, and it just takes uh, so much emotional energy um, and mental energy um, to, to process because, you know, at the end of the day, the work that you're doing has actual tangible um, impact on people's lives. No matter where you are on the spectrum, right? The, just the, 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 the people that you help elect, the policy that you help champion, all has like legitimately meaningful impact on people's lives. And um, that's a lot to take on as a, from an emotional burden standpoint. Um, and, you know, uh, and then on top of that, we were dealing, or, I mean, we were also in like one of the most uh, contentious political environments in our lifetimes. Um, certainly for younger folks, it is the most contentious political uh, environments of uh, atmospheres of our life. Um, and so like, you know, you have that plus the, just the general nature of politics itself, uh, plus a pandemic and, uh, and then plus the, the, the special election in Georgia after the, the, the president, the Super Bowl of elections, um, it was just a lot. It was just a lot. Um, and I found myself, uh, you know, partway through the year, just a few months ago, realizing that it's like, I'm out of gas for the first time in my entire career. I, I have nothing left in the tank and I've left it all in the field. Um, and, uh, and I told my team is, it's like, Hey, if I can't be creative, um, uh, I can't inspire my team to be creative. And I, and then collectively we, we can't produce creative work. Um, and, and that is going to be a liability um, to the business and, uh, and to, to my colleagues. Um, and so it was like, I, I need to, I, I need to take a step back and, and, and just take some time off, uh, and recollect myself. Um, and, you know, as things were opening up post COVID, you know, I really just wanted to be there for my girlfriend and I wanted to be there for my parents and my family, um, especially after being forced to be away from them for more than a year at that point. Yeah. Um, and so I felt that that was really, um, that was, uh, that was really, really, uh, important. And like I said, it is, you know, I, I, I think about it this way, like at, at one point during COVID at the very beginning, especially this is like, and just generally in politics, like, you know, so many people are trying to avoid politics, right. Turning off the TV, turning off social media, getting away from it. Uh, or, you know, people were just didn't want to hear more about COVID deaths and, and hospitalizations and, you know, you know, who caused it or how it's being handled. People just were like, I, I don't want to hear any more of it. But being in the business that we're in, like my team had to stare at death toll numbers every single minute of every single day to find content and clips and sound bites to put together in ads, right? Um, and that's traumatizing. Uh, on top of a, a, a summer of like a, a, a racial justice reckoning that was happening as well. Um, and, you know, my team, uh, uh, you know, I was very 
proud of uh, of building a very diverse team with people of color and um, and you know that was really difficult for myself included being a person yeah. of color um, watching that happen um, and unfold in real time um, and us not necessarily being able to go out and, and hit the streets and, and 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 protest alongside our brothers and sisters right um, in part because of COVID. Right, and just the dangers of, 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 of being um, around that many people. But then also because we were running a $100 million uh, political digital advertising campaign. And so it was hard to, to kind of break away from those things. Um, yeah. And so, you know, all that compounded really was, was what uh, ultimately led me to, to making a decision to take some time off. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, commendable that you did that, that you made that decision and took that time um, I know there's certain people out there that would have forced themselves to stick with it. Um, but I, I think you did what was right for you. And, um, you know, I think you generally haven't been hesitant in your career to do that. And I really appreciate that about you. No, thanks, Jeffrey. No, it, yeah. the encouragement is always welcome. Uh, <laughs> because uh, sometimes it, it, yeah, it is. It, sometimes it's just hard, you know? So now that you're not in politics on a day-to-day basis, you know, in what areas are you focusing activism wise? Yeah, so um, so in, in March when when there, there's like, you know, um, the uh, anti-Asian violence was was hitting mainstream media um, and, and getting a lot more attention, you know, it, it had been happening since 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 COVID uh, started, right? Like anti-Asian sentiment was already happening. Um, and it was already taking place and, and increasing, and then uh, and then it reached a fever pitch in, in, in the spring of this year. Um, I was able to to um, you know get together with a team at GoFundMe um, and uh, and some other folks to to create a um, uh, a uh, an AAPI community fund. Um, people don't know this, but GoFundMe has a um, a five hundred one c three arm to it, um, and so we at the time were like, hey. Everybody's hitting us up asking like, where do I donate? Who's organizing what? Like, how do I help? Um, and there wasn't a single source of truth because you know, ant- uh, you know, Asian activism is is relatively under the radar compared to other sort of social justice movements. And so, you know, uh, there isn't necessarily a Black Lives Matter equivalent, right, or NAACP equivalent that that people um, have sort of household recognition and understand like I can get at least at the very least I can give money to them or at least I can reach out to them or follow them on social media or whatever the case may be. And so like we're like, hey, let's 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 try to create a hub that can be a definitive source of truth of like vetted organizations that and 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 fundraisers that needed that that were legitimate um, that were support the 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 Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Um, and so we started a community fund um, with a really humble goal of 500,000. We we're like, hey, it'd be great if we, we got $500,000. Um, and uh, up to this day, I think we're at $6.9 million. Um, wow. And that has been Incredible. distributed. And yeah, no, I mean, I mean, the people, people really came out to support and it's really heartwarming. Uh, and we've been distributing that as 25,000 grants to uh, local grassroots organizations that are doing anti-racism work in their communities. Um, so making sure that the money goes directly to the people doing the work um, and not necessarily national organizations yeah. um, because they're getting attention already. And so, um, and yeah, so we've been distributing that money and and in um, waves of grants um, and, and we hope that it's, it's, um, it's made progress. Uh, it, it's, it's helped. Yeah. 
That's incredible. Um, thank you for that work. And I love the idea of helping to support the grassroots organizations that are, you know, down there doing the work. And um, those are probably the toughest dollars to raise for them. So I know it goes an incredibly long way. And most of those types of organizations are incredibly efficient with their dollars. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and you know, the vetting process is like there, there's a um, there's a committee of, you know, about a, a dozen folks um, who review uh, grant applications and, and, and does the vetting and um, and, uh, and and we're for, we've been so fortunate to find so many organizations um, to connect with and, 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 and begin to, um, uh, to, to to share resources with them. Um, and so, you know, that that taught me something very interesting was is like, you know, so many people came to me, they're like, because Victor's involved in politics and activism, like Victor has to know the answer, right? So they, my DMs were full of like, Victor, where do I donate? Who's organizing protests? And I was really embarrassed. I didn't have the answers for them. Uh, and I realized that, you know, I've fully bought into the model minority myth. And, and part of it is Asian culture of like putting others ahead of yourself. Um, people that are quote unquote more deserving of help than you. Um, and so I, 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 mean, I was very frank with you. I was like, I, I frankly know more about, let's say, racial justice um, and racism through the of, of, of the Black experience and the Black community more so than I do the Asian community. Um, and, and, and it just really taught me, it's like, I, I don't know my own community enough um, because of my proximity to whiteness, because of the model minority myth, right? And, uh, and I realized it's like, you know what? Like, no, like, it's interesting. People don't know this, but like, yes, the model minority myth has perpetuated this belief that like, oh, Asian people are educated. They are high income earning. They are, they're good uh, members of society. They don't get in trouble. They don't ruffle feathers. They're, you know, whatever the case may be, they're all very nice people, right? <laughs> the, the reality of it is that like, yes, true. That the highest earning, uh, the highest earning, like the highest earners are Asian American people, right? Highest levels of education, Asian American people. But we also have the, uh, the bottom 10%. We're also the poorest minority uh, as well, right? Uh, in New York City, the poorest ethnic group is actually Chinese, or Chinese people, right? And if you, if you think about it and you see the videos, many of the videos of, of anti-Asian violence were, were people that were collecting cans for recycling, um, that were street vendors, right? That were attacked out of the blue. And, and so people don't, because I had people in my, like when I posted a few things on, on, on social media, I had people like in my comments say, this is, this is BS, like this is total BS. Asian people are not discriminated against, right? And society and the model minority myth has a way of reinforcing that, right? Where we do see many examples of doctors, engineers, and lawyers, right? That are all Asian. <laughs> right. And so what problem could they have? What discrimination could they possibly face, right? Um, and uh, and you realize that you know there's a, still a lot of systemic, uh, overt as well as systemic and institutional racism and discrimination that um, that oppresses uh, the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Yeah. Um, and so you know that just really taught me like I need to invest more time in, in understanding my community. So I'm committed now to like really. Um, you know, spending more time understanding the landscape and immersing myself like I did with politics, 
uh, and, and figuring out ways to, to invest more time and energy into uh, more advocacy and activism work, uh, less the political stuff, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, into supporting my, my own community. And then, you know, in a broader sense, I also deeply believe that, you know, after having done the electoral political stuff, that's probably not my best use of time and energy is working on a campaign. I don't, I won't rule out the, the idea of jumping back into a campaign somewhere down the road if I feel inspired enough. But um, I deeply, I deeply want to return to creating culture because uh, again, like a culture is the force multiplier. And I believe that culture can move mountains that puts pressure on the politicians to make laws. Um, AOC said something that has stuck with me um, uh, that I think really, really um, puts all this in perspective. She says that as elected officials, like if they're doing their job correctly is to take public will and then transform that into legislation and the law of the land, right? But who shapes public will? The artists, the journalists, the musicians, the writers, the poets, the entertainment world, activists that are hitting the streets. They're the ones that shape public will to a point where it reaches a fever pitch, right? And elected officials can be like, well, this is what the people want. And in theory, they represent us. And right, if you take special interests out of the, 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 the equation, they represent us. So they, they're like, well, this is the will of the people. I need to do what and turn the will of the people into meaningful legislation and the law of the land. Right. Yeah. And you know, just as a tacit example, it's just like, you know, it's like think about what Will and Grace did for marriage equality, right? Yeah. Uh, and normalizing uh uh you know, um, yeah, mar- normalizing marriage equality, right? And that's just one of many things that helped contribute to the eventual passing um, of, of the Marriage Equality Act, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that, that came through culture. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's really interesting you pointing out, you know, that culture, culture pushes laws um, in certain directions, the cultural will and um, reminded me of something you said um, in that other podcast that I listened to about how, you know, there's direct sales, which it almost feels like the campaign is. And then there's marketing where you're, you're indirectly selling. Yeah. 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 To me, I think about it as it's, it's this push and the pull. Right. Um, and I think about it this way and, you know, I'm not, I'm terrible at sales. I worked at Cartier in sales, learned really quickly. I'm terrible at sales. Um, and I think of marketing as a soft sell, right? Um, and, and, you know, Seth Godin said something uh, that's, that's stuck with me throughout my career is that marketing is not about trickery or deception. It's about sharing something that you believe in deeply with others, right? And that's why religion is, is the best marketing case study of marketing in the world, right? It's a bunch of people that are deeply passionate about something and deeply believe in something and enthusiastically evangelizing it and, and, um, and, and talking about it and sharing it with others. And that enthusiasm, like that enthusiasm is infectious, right? And if they do a good enough job of like, you know, uh, you know sharing the right message and communicating the right message to the right people in the right context, right? Then it's, it's a natural conclusion to, 
to to buy into that religion or buy this you know this bottle of Topo Chico or buy that pair of shoes because you know we've communicated to those people in a in a way that spoke to their their need right um, and and solves a problem that they have um, and so similarly it's just like you know what I'm just going to share something that I deeply believe in in the context of politics is like or like, let's just say social justice is like, I deeply believe in marriage equality. I'm gonna talk about that as enthusiastically as possible. And if I'm, if I'm good at my job, right, it's going to resonate with some people, right? Uh, and you know, one of the defining messages of the marriage equality movement was um, love is love, right? It wasn't a 10 point policy plan. It was just three words, love is love. And that speaks to every human being. I have a friend that is in criminal justice reform and is working on, you know, lowering, lowering minimum sentences, lowering our incarceration rate, things like that. And he mentioned talking to someone who was a big part of the LGBTQ movement and getting marriage equality. And he said, you know, how did you do it? And <laughs> they said, well, a big part of it is what's in our culture. Look at things like Will and Grace and Modern Family, even if, those may have softened some people that didn't even change their minds and then it could have completely changed other minds. Um, but it's just when you relate to people in a way that's somewhat familial, it, it goes a really long way. And similarly, myself in medical cannabis lobbying, you know, I can meet a politician one year that's staunchly against it. Year two, someone in their family or friends have benefited from medical cannabis and now they're on board. And um I think that's the case in a lot of these issues and um, it shows the impact that culture can have on the mindset of the people. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Because culture is like, is, is a set of, 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 of social norms within groups of people, right? And when, we, when you hear progressive people use the word normalize, which again, we should normalize that word. It's just like, no, it's, it's not about forcing it. It's just about making sure that people understand that, hey, you know what, like, like it, like it is, it is a normal part of culture, right? It's, you can't marginalize groups of people just because they're a minority, right? Um, it, it is, it is totally normal, right? Um, and so that like a large part of that is, is just um, uh, getting people to realize that that culture has changed, right? Yeah. Um, and and that um, and that uh, what might have been under their nose has always been there. Um, yeah. And, and they're just being now asked to acknowledge it, even. Right. Right. Um, you know, and then condoning it is a, a different battle, right? But just acknowledging it is half the battle, right? And you can't yeah. fix what you can't see. Yeah. Absolutely. And. Yeah, in regards to your awesome work on fighting Asian American hate, uh, how can people support that work? I, I, I think of it as a couple of phases. Like, I think that we are in a, um, I think we're on standing on a precipice of Asian American activism, like a new era of Asian American activism that we haven't seen since, um, since the eighties and the, the refugee, the Vietnamese refugee crisis. Um, and, um, and a lot of these organizations are still small uh, and don't have the resources um, that other sort of social justice movements have. 
uh, and, and need infrastructure um, so that when this inevitably happens again, again, it bubbles up again, that these organizations are, uh, are ready and capable and able to activate uh, as quickly as possible and mobilize as quickly as possible um, so that they have resources to, and have resources to do so. So while I think money doesn't solve uh, all problems, you know, I think finding organizations in your community um, that are working on anti-racism training uh, and, and any other any any, uh, any other sort of um, Asian American um, uh, initiatives uh, and donating some money to them, I think goes a long way. Um, if you are uncertain about which organizations are um, uh, which organizations are, um, uh, are, are, are are sort of worthwhile and, and legitimate and um, or you just you're you're you have a hard time deciding which organization to give to. Um, you know, I encourage everybody to go to gofundme.com slash um, uh, uh, AAPI. Uh, and uh, that there is uh, an opportunity to uh, donate to any number of um, any number of uh, fundraisers and organizations that we've vetted, um, as well as the AAPI community fund, which is the $6.9 million that we've raised thus far that is then distributed to organizations that have been vetted. Um, so I think that's a great starting point. Um, and then, you know, I think with all, uh, with everything, it's just like a mat, like think, think about like, you know, taking inventory of your interactions with Asian people uh, and, uh, and think about uh, moments where you, there may have been bias um, in your interaction with them. Uh, everybody has biases uh, in them, no matter who. Uh, and um, as, some, as somebody once said, it's like uh, bias is like smog. Eventually you cough it up. Uh, and so your responsibility is to always check your bias um, and think about the words that you choose, right? Um, think about the, the jokes that you make. Um, think about the jokes that you've laughed at and I'm saying this to Asian people too, because trust me, I've laughed at plenty of Asian jokes and made them myself. Um, but those things, as small and as you know, silly as it, and innocent as it sounds, uh, it all adds up. Uh, and it's death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and every single Asian person in America, at least, has at least one story about when somebody uh, looked at them and pulled their eyes back. And uh, and made that look. Uh, and it is, it probably lasted no more than one and a half seconds, uh, but it is forever seared in their head. No question. Uh, and again, as innocent and as silly as it sounds, uh, those things, uh, those things matter. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope everyone can keep that in mind and take it with them. You know, we can all be a little part of positive change. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of your work and, you know, how marketing and culture can potentially, or in certain instances can often um, impact change. Was there an experience that you had where you realized that, where you really saw, you know, how your work could create impact? Yeah. I mean, I'm, 
obviously the work with acronym and, and um, is uh, is probably my proudest accomplishment, um, largely because of the scale, of course, as you can imagine, you know, um, the scale and, and the and the amount of time like we were, you know, we had built a camp, we had started our campaign exactly a year out before anybody else, any other uh, super PAC organization had announced anything. We knew that we needed to really create a, a, a steady drumbeat over the course of a year to begin to shift perceptions and minds and hearts and minds. Um, and, you know, frankly, this is like, um, most organizations went into the, the typical battleground states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and, and many went to Florida. We made a strategic decision not to go to Florida be, because we thought that it was a, a, it, there was a lost cause. Like, there's no way you're going to win in Florida. Donors that came to us were like, oh, you're not going to Florida? I'm not giving you money, right? Because they desperately, desperately wanted to win Florida for, for Democrats. But we made a conscious decision just through our research and realizing, um, you know, the, the political climate. We, we decided that we want to go into Arizona, which is not uh, a typical uh, battleground state. Uh, and then uh, also going into Georgia as well. And uh, those two states, uh, in addition to Pennsylvania, became the linchpin, uh, the linchpin uh, to um, the Biden victory. And, and, and meanwhile, you know, we, we got our butts handed us in, uh, in Florida. <laughs> uh, and so it's not to say that acronym is responsible for winning those two states. It is not. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm proud to have said that we had a role yeah. um, to play in there that in concert with the organizers that are on the ground doing the hard work uh, and, and the people that have been doing it for decades, right, to shift the, 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 the political zeitgeist in those states, um, the Stacey Abrams of the world, right, like there's no way we would have won, Georgia, uh, you know, Democrats would have won Georgia without the, the, the groundwork and the foundational work that Stacey Abrams and her organization um, uh, have done. But it was nice to know that some of our bets paid off in that sense. And Absolutely. Then, you uh, guys were a big yeah. piece of the puzzle in those markets. Like you said, it may not have shifted it single-handedly, but a big piece of the puzzle. And it shows that you're putting your resources in the right places. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, private, prior to getting into the political work, you know, I would had uh, a for, the fortunate opportunity to work with um, uh, a friend uh, and uh, a mentor of mine, um, Yossi Sirjant, um, who uh, was responsible for Shepard Ferry doing the Obama Hope poster uh, and has championed this idea of uh, art and activism uh, and, and, and the role that art, art and culture play in, 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 in changing um, hearts and minds. Um, you know, I've helped him out with a, a number of uh, projects, um, uh, a number of projects uh, in, in the art and activism space where we brought in art to help change people's perceptions on social justice issues. Um, and, you know, no one specific, um, you know, instance sticks out in, in my mind, or rather I could, I could, you know, there's, there's too many to mention, but, you know, the, it, oftentimes it's like after a gallery exhibit that we did or an experience that we built, like, you know, somebody would come to me and like, hey, say, thank you. Um, I felt seen, right? And that concept, that concept never really registered to me until I started and so I really started thinking about it is that, you know, 
being seen and being acknowledged and knowing that somebody else understands your existence is very, very powerful, right? Um, and so, you know, whether that was a particular piece of art that, that you know, had, you know, that person represented in it um, or just, you know, changing people's perspective on things, you know, getting that thanks every once in a while is, is just a deeply gratifying feeling. But then more so, you know, it's also about people that have come to me and just wanted to ask more questions, right? You know, there's certain taboo topics in our society, right? Uh, uh, sex, religion, and politics are the things that you're never supposed to talk about with friends and family, right? When in reality, those are all the things that we ought to be talking about all the time. But because culturally it's inappropriate to talk about those things or, or, or you know, un unsavory to talk about those things, um, you know, we become so dumb in how we talk about them <laughs> so that when we do end up talking about it, we end up arguing because it just devolves into emotions, right? And so, you know, the fact that it's brought back, like, you know, some of the things that I've worked on has brought back conversation and allows people to talk. Sometimes it doesn't end happily, right? But at least we're having the conversation. And that in and of itself, I... I, I fundamentally believe is progress, even though it may not always seem like it immediately. Definitely progress. We live in a society where there are so many people that shut down and don't want to even hear the other side of the conversation. So, you know, anytime that you are able to just have the conversation, regardless of the outcome, it, it goes a long way. Yeah. And I deeply believe also it's like, you know, it's this idea of like, you know, Anand Girhadas said something that has, that I, I, I really believe in is this idea is, is, that, is there a room amongst the woke for the still waking? Um, and that just means it's like, you yeah. know, people are on their, on at different points of their journey. Um, whereas like some people have been activists their entire lives and been fighting for the good fight their entire lives. And then some people are literally just getting the sleep out of their eyes, yeah. right? And just becoming aware of some of the societal issues that we face, right? Yeah. And um, rather than rather than shutting them out and being like, "Oh, you're new to this," like you figure it out, like we need to leave room for those people to to come along for the journey. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes we dismiss them because they say the wrong thing or may have a misguided opinion or something. And what ends up happening is like we, like, you know, it happens all the time. We're in a group of friends. Somebody says something slightly conservative and all the, the progressive people are down their throat, right? Is that person ever going to say, speak up ever again? No, absolutely not. Like, why would I speak up if all anybody is going to do is yell at me, right? Yeah. Whereas we could use that moment to, to, to set the record straight, share what we know and use it as a teaching moment. And and it's, and it's an emotional burden. I get it. Um, but I think, you know, I think we're, we're too dismissive of people that aren't, aren't always there yet. It's such an important lesson. You know, if, if people are going to take anything away from this conversation at all, um, I think what you're saying here is, is so powerful and necessary. Um, you know, it's so important to welcome people in that, that might not be on the same page yet. You know, that that's something I certainly worry a little bit about in our society is that so many people get immediately judged on 
potential past mistakes. And obviously there's certain mistakes you can't come back from, but when it's, you know, maybe my opinion changed and I think it's good that people grow, right? I say, I say it all the time. There are things that I said in my younger years that I would be utterly mortified if I said them today. Yeah. There, and even to a lesser extent, I tell this, I, I'm happy, I will admit, and I don't think I ever actually did, but like not too, not too many years ago, I probably would have said, I don't see color as it pertains to racism. I could easily see myself saying that just because of my lack of understanding for uh, like racial justice and, and, and racial dynamics, right? And any number of people could have told me to shut up that I'm an idiot and shut me out or canceled me, right? But it, thankfully it was because there are people that were willing to, to, to teach me uh, and guide me that I've, that I've, I would never say something like that because I don't believe that to be true yeah. anymore. Um, and so, and, and of course, like to your point, Jeffrey, is it like some people, like some people deserve to be canceled, deserve to be deplatformed, deserve to be vilified, right? But that's, I, I, I think that's, 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 that's not the majority of people. I think, and, and I get it. We get into these conversations where people approach it in, a, in, in, in bad faith, where they're not interested in actually learning. They're just interested in, in either getting their point across or pushing their agenda or owning you, right? In an argument, right? Or getting you in a gotcha moment, right? I, I'm not interested in trying to help educate those people. Those people are, are approaching it in a bad faith. But I think the vast majority of people have good intentions. I think the vast majority of people uh, do approach conversations in good faith. And you have to deal with it, you know, you have to, you know, decide for yourself in, in those situations, case by case basis, um, whether, uh, whether that's the case or not, you know? Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's, again, a really important takeaway. Um, I talked earlier about how a lot of innovators and impact are molded by their childhood. Um, a lot of it leads to where they go. So I was curious, are there any, uh, is there an experience from your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back, you know, regardless of which side of the equation you're on? It, it just think about, you know, uh, following my parents' example, right? And then seeing the Vietnamese community, regardless of socioeconomic status, right? Like how, how little money they had is that they would, that they, they, they would always carve out some money to give um, to give to people, uh, and always, uh, and always extending a, a, a helping hand. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, it, it was, it was really just everything that was ingrained in me, you know, seeing the people coming in and out of my house because my, my parents' house was just like the headquarters for the Vietnamese community, uh, and, 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 and Vietnamese activists and, uh, anti-communist activists. And, and just seeing them uh, and seeing the time, the, the nights spent, the nights spent working on, uh, on, on different issues, um, frankly, is, is, is just something that I now look back at uh, in retrospect and realize that like, that was quite formative um, uh, in, in, in my upbringing. Yeah, it's, it's cool to have the hindsight to see, you know, 
how you became the way that you did. And I think it's really important. And, um, you know, another aspect of kind of getting shaped uh, into who you become is mentorship. And, um, you know, you mentioned Yossi uh, Serjan, is that it? Mm-hmm. And is uh, be curious to hear more about him or if there's anyone else that you consider a mentor. No, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, Yossi's track record kind of speaks for itself. Uh, he now runs um, a, uh, an organization called Into Action Lab, uh, who has enlisted a literal army of um, uh, designers and animators uh, and has uh, uh, and has taken over um, meme and GIF production for the progressive movement. Uh, and if you if you go onto Instagram right now or Giphy and you type in um, uh, voting rights, for example, or go vote, the likelihood of you hitting one of uh, Interaction Labs uh, uh, GIFs is extremely high. <laughs> uh, almost 100% guaranteed that you're going to get their gifts. Um, and we know that that's how people communicate. And most political operatives and people in uh, on on uh, campaign staffers campaign staffers like can't justify writing that into a strategy, right? Uh, but we know it works. Yeah, we absolutely know it works. Um, and these gifts are getting billions. I mean, uh, literally billions with the B views. Um, and that is uh, in it, like it's worth its weight in gold. Um, and so like, uh, very grateful to him and, and, and for him to teach me so much about social justice, so much about the role of art and culture and creativity, um, in, uh, in activism. Um, and, you know, he quotes, um, uh, Toni Morrison all the time about like, you know, this is, this is when artists and writers go to work and this is how civilizations heal. Um, and he, he also says that, you know, that he always reminds me that no no revolution has ever been won um, without artists at the forefront. Yeah, um, and I and I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's a great takeaway. Yeah. So I have a you know I do have a couple more questions, and I know we, we haven't really got into where you're focusing your talents now. Yeah. You know, NFTs, metaverse, blockchain. <laughs> um, Plot twist. So maybe. Well, <laughs> may, maybe that's for for another day. Um, but if there's anything sort of quick on what you, um, that you want to say on what you're doing now, I think uh, it'd be a good time. No, I, I mean, it, it still boils back to, boils down to, to what is it the world needs and, uh, and how might I be able to help, right? And so, you know, as with many people, people become really fixated and very interested in blockchain technology and, and kind of what that means for the financial services world and, and, and currency for, for people that don't have access to currency uh, and uh, the accessibility of finance, financial systems and whatnot. Uh, and then of course, NFTs, non-fungible tokens and, and art and what that means for artists. Um, I start to immediately think about what NFTs and blockchain technology can do for campaign organizers um, and what tokenized community looks like. Um, and you know, without going into the laborious detail and esoteric, uh, descriptions of what all those buzzy word, uh, buzzwords all mean. I'm, I'm really excited about, I think that NFTs um, and, and what's being termed as like Web 3.0 is the biggest paradigm shift in the internet since social media. And like social media, 
you know, I, I highly encourage people to invest time in trying to understand that because there's going to be massive implications uh, culturally, societally, uh, and for businesses and brands um, uh, in, in the coming years. Uh, and it would behoove everybody to, to start to understand, um, start to understand um, this technology, um, to be able to, to find and innovate ways to use it for good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we have this huge opportunity for wealth creation for, for, for more people um, through things like cryptocurrency and NFTs, um, but only if we open the doors and only if we share what we learn broadly and widely. Um, so I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what my role in Web3 is going to be. I just know that it is um, really in a, a very exciting space um, that and, and when, I, when I don't quite understand something and I can't wrap my head around why something is gaining traction or becoming popular, like I just become dogged about understanding it uh, for myself and then deciding whether I want to, whether it's for me or not, right? That's a valuable mindset to go into new ideas with. And um, I really like how you highlighted the potential positive impact that those various technologies can create. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is the, the point in which uh, you can ask a question of me if you'd like. <laughs> I was dreading this. I was dreading this question because <laughs> there were like this opportunity um, because, um, well, I mean, uh, like actually I do, I, uh, I do want to know, like, what are you most excited about? Obviously you, you, you know, you have your fingers in a number of things um, like cannabis legislation uh, and, and different philanthropies and whatnot. Um, but what is, what's, you know, if, if NFTs and the metaverse is what gets me super excited these days, um, and I find myself thinking about it at all hours of the night, what gets you most excited uh, right now? I think in terms of societal change, maybe it's the optimist in me, but I think that we are on the verge of a, rev a criminal justice revolution, um, a revolution within our justice system within our incarceration system. I think that there've obviously been a lot of tremendous criminal justice reform advocates over the years, but I think the convergence with um, the recent um, discussions around race in our country have highlighted the incredible injustices um, that are going on. And I think more people are becoming not only aware, but caring about it. I think there's younger generations um, people in their, their thirties and forties that are very different than some of the, you know, say dinosaurs that have been in charge for so long that have empathy for these humans whose lives are getting ruined by say being caught with a small amount of cannabis and then never being able to get a job and support their families again, or being locked in jail away from their families. Um, so I'm seeing, and I'm coming from somewhat of a biased area in terms of this is where I do a lot of work, but I am seeing movement. I'm seeing change start to happen. I'm also seeing technology woven into it. Um, organizations like Recidiviz, which um, analyze data to, to help you know increase efficiencies in how our jail systems work and how our criminal justice system works. And uh, there's just an incredible number of good people that are working on these problems. And I think when you add into that, 
the addition of interest in sort of unbundling policing, um, changing the responsibilities, who they're of, and trying to lessen negative interactions. All of these things come together to me to hopefully signal toward a more just society where we don't have such an absurd number of our population incarcerated. No, I, I, I definitely agree, Jeffrey. The, um, there's so much opportunity with criminal justice reform. And, and you know, like I said, it's, uh, you can't fix what you can't see, right? And so the first thing is to acknowledge that there is a problem, right? Uh, and then you start to bring, you know, bring more people into the fold um, through any number of ways, right? Uh, and allow those people to uh, move up what I call the, engage the ladder of engagement, right? Um, and so, but we have to allow people, we have to allow people to, to, to go about their journey uh, and experience it um, and, and allow them to evolve their opinions and their thinking because, you know, most people don't come around right away. Um, they, it, it's a very gradual process. Um, and so um, I too have been very excited about uh, the possibilities around criminal justice reform and the work um, that's being done in that space. Um, and, uh, and, and hope that, you know, the, the leaders that we elect in the midterms uh, in 2024 um, also support um, those measures. Yeah. yeah, that those are certainly going to be vital elections for this and for the country in general. And hopefully everybody gets out and votes. Yeah. Exactly. So there, there's one question that I've been asking all my guests, and I, I, I get new perspectives on it all the time, but there's also always a little bit of the same thing. So it's been interesting. Um, the question is, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? So I think I touched on this. Um, I touched on this a couple of times throughout our, our conversation um, Jeffrey is is that you know civics education in America is decimated. You know, there's 14 states I believe um, that don't require a civics uh, a class to graduate, civics or civics equivalent. And people were like, "Well, no, I took government, or I took U.S. history, or I took social studies." Um, those aren't civics classes. Yeah. Civics class, if you ask our parents, right, uh, and I don't know if you did in South Carolina, you had a civics class. I did not have a no. civics class here in Arlington, Virginia. Um, uh, you know, civics, if you ask our parents, is really teaching you what the responsibilities of being a citizen are. And I know that there are naturalized citizens that pass the immigration test, right, that probably know more about American civics than natural born citizens do, uh, uh, Americans do. And, uh, and like I said before, two thirds of Americans can't correctly name the three branches of, of government. So how do you expect them to hold our elected officials accountable? Because getting them into office is one thing, right? Then your job is to, is to keep them accountable. And they don't do their job, regardless of where they are on the spectrum, gotta boot them, right? But we've ceded that responsibility uh, to a minority of people. Um, and you know, Ch Chief Justice David Souter in 2012, in an interview, um, uh, interview somebody asked him 
to comment on the decline of civics education. He's like, uh, and he's, I'm paraphrasing, but he said like, there's, there's no greater travesty than the decline of civic or like, then there's no great, greater threat to our democracy than pervasive civic ignorance. And he said, you know, he's like, I have like, because the, you know, there's a quote that like Benjamin Franklin, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person asked Benjamin Franklin, uh, you know, coming out of the constitutional Congress, uh, you know, what do we have a monarchy or a, a republic? And he, he, Benjamin Franklin responds, a republic, if we can keep it. Meaning that it is incumbent upon the citizens of America to maintain democracy. And as John Lewis said, is like democracy is not a state, it is an act. And so, you know, it isn't, it, it's important, it's incumbent for us to, to understand how government works so that we can hold our, our, our leaders and our representatives accountable and then so that we can all be engaged in it. And, and because he said like Chief Justice Souter and it's a PBS interview, um, if anybody Googles it on YouTube, it's a PBS interview from 2012. Um, and, and he says that, he says that I have full confidence that if we understand how government works, that we can hold, we can maintain our, our, our democracy and hold our elected officials accountable. If we can't, right, if we don't, if we don't understand, like if, if we don't understand civics and how government is supposed to work, um, then all it takes is some, some person, some savior to come in and say, don't worry, I got this, right? I will fix everything with a magic wand. And we're just gonna give that person the ball and they're gonna run with it, right? And that is effectively what happened with, with, with Trump, right? is that he came in and he says that I alone can fix it. Those were his words, right? Um, and effectively people believed it and gave him the ball and he ran with it. Uh, and this was like so prescient, this was in 2012. And, and so if I could snap my finger and change um, just one thing that I think would reverberate across all democracies around the world is that um, to make sure that everybody has a proper civics education because i think it would solve a lot of problems really good point that we don't hear enough about um so i appreciate you sharing that and hopefully we're able to see a society where that is the case at some point yeah yeah well thanks so much for coming on it's uh thanks for the extra time too i know it's been a long one but um it's been awesome sorry sorry to your these. listeners <laughs> I, i'm i think that they should be thanking you because i'm sure they'll enjoy it and um thanks so much for, for coming on you know in terms of people following up with you um i'll link to the gofundme um you know i'll have your social links is anything else that people should do i uh, know i i think um uh, just be kind to one another I think that's uh, that's like my my party message uh, to you and your listeners. But uh, thanks for the opportunity, Jeffrey. I appreciate you uh, you taking the time yourself. Absolutely, um, it's been great, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. dot